May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I had some time to kill the other day. I was um, sitting at the house uh, waiting on my wife to get home, and we were going somewhere. And so I do what you do when you have some time to kill. I turned on the television. You thought I was going to say I prayed, didn't you? Well, I turned on the TV, and um, I, I could have done that too. Uh, I turned on the TV, and I started flipping around, and I came across the Dr. Phil show. Um, it, I, I watched it just long enough to get hooked. Uh, there was this young couple, late 20s, early 30s, uh, two small preschooler children. Um, the wife was a stay-at-home mom. The, the husband worked in some finance company or something like that. And you may know that the Dr. Phil show that Dr. Phil specializes sort of in relationship issues. Um, he, he finds conflict and, and helps them to resolve it. And the sort of sticky wicket in this program dealt with a man who had um, expectations for his wife and her housekeeping abilities um, versus uh, what she thought was perhaps a lack of good communication skills on behalf of her husband. Um, he felt like she wasn't working hard enough during the day. Okay. And so in order to demonstrate his uh, firm-held belief in the fact that she wasn't working hard enough during the day, the camera crew came to the house, and he takes them through the house and points out um, her miscreant behavior. Um, he found, like, uh, closets that were uh, not very tidy and, um, and dust on the top of, uh, like, picture frames and um, on the baseboards, and there were fingerprints on mirrors and on the sliding glass door and so on. And um, he also lamented the fact that uh, when he comes home from work, uh, there is not the smell of fresh baked bread in the air um, and maybe not even dinner ready. I see the women rolling their eyes at this point and uh, know <laughs> that, uh, that this is exactly what I was feeling as well. Um, that He was lamenting this uh, undue stress that he had. The wife, for her part, uh, said there were many tasks that she wished to get done, but with two preschooler children, she felt like the never-ending demands of just taking care of children made it so that she had to prioritize and some things had to be left undone. And then she said, but his berating of me about these things every day makes me usually go to bed in tears. And Dr. Phil then was discharged with the responsibility of helping this couple put back their marriage, you know, and to, to save it. And the question, of course, is did the wife need to improve on her housekeeping skills or did the husband need to manage his expectations? For my part, I wonder how they ever had a second child. Um, <laughs> maybe you would have wondered that too. Um, wise is the man who does not judge the cleanliness of his wife's closet, you know. Uh, and I thought, you know, if, if you're in business with somebody, right, it, or if you're a supervisor for somebody, you know, your job is to super... You may have an obligation, in fact, a duty to judge the performance of their work. But that's not the relationship between husband and wife. It is not a spouse's job to, uh, to judge the quality of the other's work. Some relationships permit and indeed encourage judgments. A spousal relationship is not one of them. St. Paul writes um, to the Christians living in Rome at the time of Nero. These are people he's never met. He's never met them personally. Um, he, he writes to them because he hears about some problems that are going on in their church, and he intends to visit en route to what he hopes will be to Spain. If you read this letter, though, from the beginning, you would not know that he was writing to sort of address 
problems in the church. You might think that he is just simply giving them this long sort of theological treatise on the work of God and God's plan of salvation. It's sort of like an explanation to which there was no question. Uh, my kids will tell you that this happens around our house frequently. It's the professorial task, you know. It's the task of a teacher. And if, if, if you have that teaching stuff inside of you, maybe your kids get it too, you know. Um, and so, you know, one of my sons might say something like, um, oh, Dad, I saw this guy on this skateboard, made this really radical move. It was unbelievable. And I'll say, radical? Did you say radical? Do you know that radical comes from the Latin radix, which means root? So what you're saying is at the root that this was a very unique or different... And they'll look at me like I have three heads, right? Like, you are giving me an explanation for which there was no question. You know, I, I don't need this. Like Congress, you know, a solution for which there was no problem. These are sort of things that, that, that professorial people do. And I think that if you had read Romans from the beginning and you were in the church in Rome, you might be kind of curious as to why Paul goes to all these details. I mean, he starts uh, with um, problems in pagan religion and talks about problems in Judaism. He talks about Abraham and Sarah. He talks about the work of Christ on the cross and new life in Christ and how it's wonderful to have now no condemnation because those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes through all of this, really even spends a long time on the, on, on the, on the future hope of Israel. But then he starts getting to the nitty-gritty, you know? He starts about paying taxes and how... You know, you owe it to the government to pay taxes, but you know what you also owe? You also owe it to one another to love one another. And then he gets to chapter 14, and we start to realize what the real problem is. You see, there is a bifurcation. There are two groups in the church in Rome. Paul calls them the strong and the weak. Listen to chapter 14, verse 1. It's in your bulletin there. As for the one who is weak in faith. Do you hear that? The one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. If, if you had a Bible open and you could look down to chapter 15, you would see how he begins chapter 15. We who are strong, that is strong in faith, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Weak in faith, strong in faith. Two groups in the church in Rome. But notice it's in faith. Weak in faith, strong in faith. And Paul does not mean weak in faith in a sort of pejorative way. It's not an insult. It's not as if saying, um, you know, that they're uh, lesser because they're weak in faith and these who are stronger are, are better. A lot of people could be weak in faith for many reasons. Perhaps they're new to Christianity. Maybe they're constitutionally weaker. I thought about how it is like with physical strength, you know, like if you compare like me to Brian. And the fact that I can bench press twice as much as he can. We don't make fun of him for that, do we? We, we don't. And you, I'm glad you laughed because you got it, right? Um, yeah. They would look at me and like, Joe, do you even lift? What do you do? Are you, you, you know, we don't make fun of people who are weaker because they're constitutionally weaker or because they're new to something. And this is the issue with Christianity. There are people who are weak in faith and those who are strong. And Paul doesn't mean to discredit some and give a, a sort of accolades to the other. Second, it's what he means by strong and weak. I think this is really important. I always tend to think, and maybe you do too, that the people with really rigorous personal rules are those who I would describe as strong in faith. They have all these personal convictions about everything. You know, those who have less convictions, less you know, personal prohibitions, tend to be 
weaker in faith. But Paul actually means it in the exact opposite way. The person who has these really strong, overt scruples, the person who has this sense of, um, of, of you know, high level of convictions, he calls weak. They are those who refuse to eat certain foods because they're afraid they'll offend God with them. They, they, they keep certain religious holidays because they're afraid if they don't that God will be displeased with them. People with these really serious uh, convictions. Some of them are Jewish. Uh, the church is largely Jewish at this time. And some of them are, are worried that if they start eating non-kosher foods like their Gentile friends, that they'll displease God. Or if they don't keep certain Jewish holidays, that they'll be displeasing to God. And then there are some Gentile Christians who are new to Christianity, who are so afraid of their former life in paganism that they don't want to have anything to do with eating certain foods that might have been tainted by uh, pagan worship. And so there are people who are weak in faith, and, and, and because of that, they have these, these convictions about things that they won't do and places they won't go and, and th- this sort of stuff. And there are others who are saying, well, that's just silly. You know, food is food. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care about that. And, and they, they have this conflict between them. Um, I remember uh, one time when I was I was a youth leader. I I was like a twenty um, somethings, and I was helping with a teen group at my church, and it was a pretty good sized teen group. There were like thirty or so teenagers that were part of this group, and uh, and one time there was this going to be the local event where all these different churches came together. There was a gymnasium at a certain church. We we're going to play games or music and that sort of thing. You you get the idea. Pizza. I think we were locked in for the night. Well, anyway, we go there, and we're doing all these things. And then one of the events of the night was that several of these pastors had a band they put together with some, you know, guitars and drums and the like. And they started playing Beach Boys music, which was really fun, you know. Um, everybody's up dancing, having a good time. But the youth leader for our group, the guy who was all in like, motions to all of our kids and me, come on, let's go. I thought somebody was injured, you know. I was worried about this, like what happened. And we all get outside the room, and he tells us that when he was growing up, he used to listen to the Beach Boys all the time and that, that they would, you know, drink and party and carouse and, and, and that that was the life that, that Christ had delivered him from, and he didn't want to influence these kids. With it. And I said, it's the Beach Boys music. It's not even really the Beach Boys. It's a bad imitation of the Beach Boys, you know. Like, it's not going to hurt anybody. There was a bit of conflict between he and I and between other people in the church. Uh, the pastor of that particular church came out. He was really upset. My friend was really weak in faith at this one point. And there were people who were very strong in their faith at this same point. And there was a real conflict about it. It's not an insult to say that someone is weak and has convictions. Nor is it an accolade to say that they're strong because they don't. Paul's point is... If someone is weak in faith, they have no right to judge someone who's strong. And if someone's strong in faith, they have no right to despise someone who's weak. It's up to God. It's not up to one another to judge one another. Some feel free to eat. Some don't. Some feel free to keep certain days. Some don't. He says this. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. You don't sacrifice vegetables. You know, they're... They're pretty sad. <laughs> let one who eats not despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Some people are strong in faith. They think God doesn't care about food or music or bubble gum or whatever else. And others are weak. They're so 
concerned, so cautious that they don't offend God, that they're, they're very super scrupulous with their choices. And Paul says, you know what? Both are right and both can be wrong. Both are right and both can be wrong. Now, I'm not sure if I really need direct application, but as I told the group last night, I am a preacher and I do have a captive audience, and so you're going to get it, right? Um, our church, our Anglican church, tends to be one, uh, in general, of a strong faith position. We do not have a long list of ethical prohibitions for our people to keep. We don't. We, we give you ten commandments and say, all right, now, now pretty much work it out from there, okay? Uh, but there are churches who are not like that. Um, I have lots of friends who are in, in other types of um, circles. And I know churches where they prohibit, for instance, the use of alcohol, tobacco, um, you're not allowed to uh, go to films, movies. Um, some who don't watch television, uh, dancing is totally forbidden <laughs> and all of these, you know. They have all of these rules. Um, and that these young people who are born into these communities, which are faithful Christian communities, they grow up, they, 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 um, they go to school, they, they believe these things to be true all their lives. And then about somewhere in their mid-20s, they get married and they move in the suburbs. And there's some Anglicans who live right across the street from them. And they go out to dinner together. Yes, and somebody orders wine. And then it becomes a real problem, right? And, and, and those who grew up in the really strict church are like, these Anglicans are not even Christians. And the Anglicans look at these people who grew up in the strict church and say, what are they, against fun? I mean, what is this? Well, the whole thing. And, and there's this bifurcation within the Christian community. It even happens among our own Anglican church. We have people who, um, who think, for instance, that you have to vote in a certain way. If you don't vote for this particular party, I don't even know how you call yourself Christian. And others who say, I just think that's absurd. There's some people who think that it's wrong, immoral, to eat meat. Some who think that, um, that there is no book of common prayer after 1662 that is valid. <laughs> you know, 1662 and that's it. You know, um, there are other people who think the whole idea of a book of common prayer is preposterous. Some people wonder why we have to have vestments on our clergy while others wonder, why don't we have incense every Sunday? You know, there's these differences of opinion in so many things. And Paul says, it is not my job to judge other people. It's not your job to judge other people. It's not your job to judge someone else. It is our job to love one another. That's what it is. And when people despise people because they hold a certain conviction, we think is silly, we're despising Christ. And we judge one another for one behavior they hold or don't. We're judging Christ. And Paul says, that's not your job. It's not your job to do that. It is your job to protect the harmony of the church. It is your job to protect friendships. It is your job to encourage fellow Christians. To watch after your own soul. For me to watch after my own soul. Now listen, doesn't mean that we ignore notorious sin. A friend of mine comes to me and says, oh, I'm you know, having an affair, I'm cheating on my wife. He's not getting away with it. You know? I'm not saying that that's permissible. It's not. That is not passing judgment. That's being accountable to one another. And it's different. Someone comes to me and says they're thinking about wearing maize and blue at the end of November. Forget it. That is not a... You are, you are messing with your own soul. You know? And danger of hellfire. And if you don't know football, you don't understand what I just talked about. Okay? Let it go. When it comes to matters that don't matter, and most things don't matter, 
When it comes to matters that don't matter, we think and let think. We live and let live. We look and look away. It's not our job to judge. It's not. It is our job to love. I don't think I ever did see the end of the Dr. Phil episode um, (laughs) where the husband was so harshly judging his wife. But I got enough of it to see that the whole panel of psychologists together with Dr. Phil and Dr. Phil's wife who was in the audience were all lining up against the husband. He was in the serious crosshairs of, uh, you know, all of the intelligentsia and uh, he was in trouble. Secretly, I kind of hope he would start crying. I thought that might be um, a turnabout, you know. (laughs) I know that's kind of mean. But um, they sort of pointed out, you know, it's not your job to judge your wife. It's your job to love her. It's not her job to judge you. It's her job to love you. And it's not our job to judge one another. It is our job to love one another. I think it's important that we do our jobs, don't you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.